Thanks for joining us today. If you're new to The Rock, we would love to connect with you. You can text Rock Up KC to 816-307-1611 for a Connect card, and a member of our team will be in touch with you shortly. If you'd like to partner with us financially, you can give safely and securely through our app and on our website at rockupkc.com. Your generous giving through The Rock supports many ministries locally and globally. We hope you enjoy this week's message. Hey, if I could dance, I would maybe come up with a dance, but uh, I don't want to embarrass my family. Most of the time, I don't want to. Well, good morning, church. Welcome to the building. Welcome online. Are you all ready to uh, get into the word? Ready for that word to get into you? Okay, well, it's going to come. I do have uh, something I feel like the Holy Spirit just laid on my heart uh, during worship. Um, it's the thought that it's not original with me, but don't let what you don't know keep you from what you do know. Um, many people do that with God but they don't do it with every other area of their life. They don't have a clue how their computer works their car. They don't have a clue how Bluetooth works. They don't know a thing about, um, you know, quantum physics, but quantum physics has uh, brought a lot of things into creation because of the discovery of quantum physics, and so you benefit from it without knowing it. But there are people who will not go after God or turn to God for what they don't know instead of what they do know. So I want to encourage you. There's someone here who needs to hear that. You've been, you've, been, you've been held up by what you don't understand about God. And that's a trick of the enemy. And um, apply the same principle you do with the other stuff that you don't understand about. You can't segregate this. Go after God with what you do know. Trust him with what you do know. And uh, understanding may come, understanding may not, not come, but he's worthy to be trusted. And I encourage you to go ahead and take the step of faith and take the plunge and trust in the goodness of God because he is good and his love endures forever. Amen. All right. Hey, thank you all for showing up. Thank you for the gift of your presence. Showing up matters. Being present matters. And um, it, it, uh, it blesses. It blesses people. And uh, the other thought I have is when Jericho was conquered, the instructions were kind of crazy, if you think about it. The instructions to conquer the city were, I, I want you to march around the city one time for six days, and I don't want you to say a word. I want you to be quiet. And there's a lesson there, because showing up doesn't mean you always have to say something. Showing up just means I'm present and I'm here. And especially when people are in crisis. Sometimes we want to come with words. And sometimes those words are really dumb. I mean, in all seriousness, they just because we're trying to show empathy or whatever. And sometimes it's best just to be quiet and show up. And just, I'm here. And um, so they, for six days, one time a day, they marched around Jericho. And then the instructions were, on the seventh day, you march around seven times. And then when the trumpets blow, then you will shout. And now we go, this is a crazy battle plan. This makes no sense. Why would we do this? Why would we expose ourselves to the enemy and this walled city 
and they could shoot us, and, but we obey God rather than men. And God's ways are higher than our ways, and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And so there again, you have to learn to trust God even when we don't understand because some of his ways are past finding out. Like this makes no sense at all. And I know some of you are going through a valley. Some of you are going to the descent uh, into the valley, which is, is you know, we want, we want trials to come and go. We don't want them to come and stay. And some trials stay for a long time. And we wonder where God went. Well, he didn't go anywhere. He's there. And in the valley, you will learn perseverance. In the valley, you will learn trust that you will never learn if everything were easy. And so you trust. And you say, God, I don't understand this, but I trust you. And just like Habakkuk says, though there are no figs on the vine, where there's no olive branches, there's no cattle in the stall, and it's just given. That's the descent. Like, man, how, where did everything go? How did this happen? Where did it come from? But then he says, yet. Yet. Everyone needs a yet. You need a yet. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord, my creator, for he is my strength. And see, that's the purpose of valleys. That's the purpose of descent to get you closer to God and to learn perseverance. And it's not fun. It's not comfortable. <laughs> it's like, I want the easy button. Um, so I want to encourage you. Uh, you may not be there at the yet, but I'm, I'm going to pray for you to get there. Get to that place of yet. Because that's when you really discover what matters and that God's strength, the joy of the presence of God. And when I was sick in my bed with COVID and I wanted to tap out, I, I, I didn't have lofty prayers. I didn't have the victory shouts. I was just like, God, I need you. And I need you to hold me right now. And I knew God was going to bring me out of this. I knew he was. I knew it wasn't my time. And I wish I could come to you and say, you know, I had, I told the devil, I gave him black eye. Listen, I didn't have any strength to get out of bed. But the goodness of God, the goodness of God, even in the midst of that, the headache, no taste, no, just, it's horrible. The goodness of God. And as the psalmist David said, if I had not believed I would see the goodness of God in the land of the living, I would have despaired. So I pray, Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray for people right now who are hurting. They're scared. They're afraid. They're angry. They're upset. They're bewildered. God, meet them in the valley. Meet them in the valley right now, God. They're lonely. They've lost a loved one. They're confused. The enemy has come in like a flood. But God, right now, I pray you'll meet them in the valley. And I pray that there yet will come. The supernatural empowerment of your presence would come. And they would see 
and allow you to hold them and to strengthen them, to feed them and nourish them. And that perseverance would have its perfect work and that joy would come. I pray for them in the name of Jesus. And all of God's people said, amen and amen. All right, well, let's get into uh, the book of Ephesians. All right, we're, we're in chapter six. We're gonna wrap up the series uh, today, the Lord willing. Y'all ready? Ephesians chapter six, verses one through 24. Uh, we're coming into Ephesians, from Ephesians five, Ephesians four, talking about unity, the gifts given. Paul talked about marriage and unity in the marriage and about husbands loving their wives and wives respecting their husbands. God's wanting unity in the church. He wants unity in the marriage. He wants unity in the family. And he comes into that, that idea of the spirit-filled life in the family. That's point number one. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. It's simple and straightforward instruction. Would you not agree? It's just really clear, laid it out. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for it's right. This is why we need to obey. Now, we're all children of God. Are you a child of God? To as many as received him, if you've received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're a child of God. And one of the marks of a child of God is they're obedient. Jesus, that's one of the first marks of a disciple is they obey. Jesus said, go into all the world, baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to consider all the things I've said. No, he says, teach them to obey. The first mark of true discipleship is, I don't get all this, I don't understand all of it, but God said it, and I'm going to do it. Well, there was a time for an amen. Okay, so now you wonder why your children won't obey. All right, now, <clears throat> children are to obey, and parents are to teach children obedience. We don't have to teach children how to disobey. How many of you discovered that? Like, I didn't have to teach my children how to fight. I didn't teach, have to teach my children how to be stingy. I didn't have to teach my children how to bite someone in the nursery. <laughs> I don't know if any of our kids ever did that, but I know there are some of yours that have, you know. <laughs> And uh, so that, that, that was inherited. That's inherited from the fall of Adam and Eve. We all have that little sin nature. You know, we just love it when babies are born and they're a gift from God and they're so precious and then they throw up on you. Yeah, that's an indication <laughs> of what's to come. All right. And then, you know, they're so precious and wonderful and then they're 13, 14, 15 and hormonal changes are happening and they already know everything that needs to be known and you're ready to take them back. Like, can I give them back? What happened to those days? But obedience has to be taught. It's just not automatic. It has to be taught. Sometimes you teach them obedience by reality discipline. Dr. Kevin Lehman calls this reality discipline. When you allow a child to feel the consequences of their decisions. You don't bail them out. I remember years ago, uh, the Holy Spirit spoke to me about, he said these words to me, do not try to fix the fix that I have fixed to fix the person. Do not try to fix the fix that I have 
fixed to fix the person. And in other words, we will, we will intervene when, when God's almost got them to a place of brokenness and transformation to change. Because we can't stand the consequence of what they're having to go through. And it's illustrated with the idea of the monarch butterfly that a man had on his desk. I used to find those caterpillars, and I loved to do it because they form a, a green outside uh, cocoon with this like this gold, black and gold around the edge of it. It's just amazing creation is. It's just like, and that just happens. <laughs> no, there's design here. But anyway, um, this the the. The butterfly began to uh, emerge from the cocoon on his desk in the jar, and it struggled and struggled and struggled and struggled and struggled to get out. And there was one last little string that didn't seem to want to break. And so in his idea, I'm going to be merciful to this creature. I'm going to be merciful to it. He reaches up and snips it, and then it just falls to the bottom of the jar and crawls for several days and dies. And he called his friend up who was a naturalist and told him about what had happened. And he goes, oh, do you not under, you, you totally interrupted the process that the creator had made because in the struggle, it secreted the right chemicals in order to give it wings to fly. And by your intervention, you destined it to crawl when it was created to fly. And so reality discipline is like, uh, I tell Dr. Kevin Lehman, I think it was who I heard this from, told the story about a, a young man who was a good young man. It was like his senior year in high school and he had worked to save up money so he wouldn't have to work. He could really enjoy football and all the other stuff. And so his parents were going out of town. He got permission to have a couple of his football buddies over to, to you know, play video games and watch movies and, you know, eat pizza. And so... They came over. The problem was his two friends had told everyone else in the school about it. And before you know it, a party was on. And after everything was said and done, the police were called. The yard was torn up. Drapes were pulled down. People had urinated on the carpet in the master bedroom. And it was a total mess. And there was some like $2,800, $3,000 worth of damage. And the dad says to the son, he says, well, son, you know, it's going to be $2,800. I'm not paying for this. You're going to have to. But dad, it wasn't my fault. It was those guys and they did it. He goes, well, you'll have to choose friends better next time. Or why don't you go get money from them? But I'm not paying this bill. You are. But dad, I've saved up money and now I'm going to have to work part time. He goes, son, that's not my problem. Because the dad loved him enough to know that life isn't always going to bail you out. Life will not always bail you out. And it won't always be fair. That's called reality discipline. And that's why I've said often, I said, you know, you see a child out of control. And sometimes they're just out of control. It's not because of the parents, but sometimes it is. Like more parents need to be spanked than children do. And so we have to teach our children to obey. And sometimes it's hard. It's hard to let them learn from their consequences. But they need to be. They need to. And why do we do this? Because it's right. 
It's right. Verse 2, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. That's a pretty good deal. How about, like, honor your father and mother and it'll go well with you and you'll live long on the earth. That's a pretty good promise. I say, I take it. See, the gospel introduced a fresh element into parental responsibility by insisting that the feelings of the child must be taken into consideration. In a society where the father's authority, patria protestus, was absolute. So the idea in the Roman culture and in that time was that children were really to be seen and not heard. And they were really kind of, until they could work, they're really no use. And, and that's not God's heart towards children at all. Or that the father was, I, I'm right, and I've got the edict, and I'm strong, and hear me roar, and it doesn't matter if I'm foolish and I'm stupid, it's, I'm dad, and that's it. And God's kind of turning the table here and said, this isn't the heart at all. This isn't the way marriage is supposed to be. Husbands are not supposed to dominate their wives. They don't submit to everything their husband says to do. It says, in the Lord. I'm not going to worship your idols. Hello? Come on. I mean, but that, it gets abused. People take things out of context. And so Paul is introducing unity in the home. Same team. You're all on the same team here. Y'all know same team, right? You have to have team meetings when things are getting out of sorts. And you just pull the team together and say, look, you know, we're the same team. I'm dad, this is mom, your brother, your sister. Uh, this is the, we're a family here, and we're on the same team. And we all contribute to the unity of this home. We all contribute to the atmosphere of this home. And we're on the same team, and we're not going to fight over the rebound. Like, two guys go up on the same team for the rebound, they start fighting each other. Like, no, they're supposed to yell, same team. Hey, we're on the same team. Let, let me have the ball, or I'll give it to you. But we're not going to fight over it. And so Paul is referencing Deuteronomy 5.16. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God has commanded you that your days may be long and that it may be well with you in the land which the Lord your God has given you. So Christians have normally divided the Ten Commandments into the first four directed towards God and the last six directed towards their fellow man. How many of you heard that teaching? Like the first four commandments are directed towards God and the last six. But the Jews divided the commandments in two sets of five. Seeing the law to honor your father and mother more as a duty towards God than a duty towards man. Why do I honor my father and mother? Because it's my duty towards God to do so. You say, well, my dad was this, that, or the other. Look, he gave you life. <laughs> Honor God for that. Verse 4, and you fathers do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Parents certainly have the opportunity to provoke their children to wrath. Through an unkind, overcritical attitude that torments the child instead of training them. Here's how, here are some ways that parents provoke their children. By embarrassing them, correcting or mocking or expressing disappointment in them in front of others. I remember a few years ago being at a football game. It was at Staley High School. 
And it was after the game and people were out on the field and talking and stuff. And there was a, a dad just laying into his son. And there was, I guess, a mom or maybe another relative and some people standing there. And they're all kind of like, oh, my gosh. And this person was fairly big. And um, I just, he just, and the son was just standing there just taking it. You, but you could tell he was just melting on the inside. You could tell he was being shamed and embarrassed. And uh, I'm like praying, God, you know, what do I do here? I, I don't know this man. I don't know these people. There's others. And I had already determined that God was saying, you, you just step back here. But if he would have laid a hand on him, there would have been. I, I determined a long time ago after an incident in high school that I would never stand back and just let someone get beat up. But anyway, that's... <laughs> the point was, there was this... My heart broke inside for this young man because he was being provoked. Be provoked by always lecturing them and never listening to them. By disciplining them for childishness or weakness, not for sin. By failing to ask their forgiveness when you sin against them. These are ways that we provoke our kids and create wrath and anger in them. Through anger, through harshness, by self-centered reactions to their sin. Like for this one, this can be, how could you do this to me? Now, grace to you if you've ever said that, but I'm going to tell you something. Kids probably aren't thinking about you when they're sinning. They're probably not. They're probably just being kids and sinning. Now, some of them may, but here's the problem here. We, we put too much on ourselves. How could you do this to me? Look, you're not the center of the world. I, this, that's a tough one for people to, I just want you to marinate. Let that marinate. Now, we have to get rid of the song. I was walking with Pastor Shane one day. I think we were in Australia or whatever, maybe here in America. But, um, and I was humming. I was kind of singing. And he goes, what are, you, what are you singing? I said, I'm singing everyone's favorite theme song. I'm always on my mind. I'm always on my mind. And that's the nature of sin. We want to put ourselves on the pedestal. How could you do this to me? How do we could do this to God? Like, well, I'm not the sinner. God's the sinner of, of the world. He's the sinner. He's the creator of all things. And I've watched this over the years of pastoring of people who've walked away from God and been prodigal. And they say, well, I'm... I, I'm not going to come back to church. I'm not coming back because everyone's going to stare at me and everyone's going to look at me. I said, listen, I'm, I just want to give you something. Sin has deceived you into believing that you're that important, that everyone's thinking about you. They're not. I guarantee you. They're, gonna, they're not coming to church going, oh, what are they doing? They're thinking about what am I going to go eat next, you know? When is this guy going to get done? I'm, this is, so just Get off that deception. Take yourself off of that pedestal because not everyone is thinking about your sin and what you're doing or what you have done. 
Training has the idea of discipline and admonition is the idea of teaching. So we train, we discipline. Go do your homework. Go practice your flute. Go practice your guitar. Because discipline brings freedom. When you discipline yourself to learn, if you learn the place, I know you're second string quarterback, but learn the place because there may be a time you need to go in. And you discipline yourself, it'll give you the freedom to go in there with confidence. If you get called upon and you haven't practiced, you're like, well, you know, I'm a little rusty and I have all these excuses. But if you've disciplined yourself, you have the freedom to get up and play. And so we train them, we discipline them. Clean your room, get your homework done. And these are disciplines. Brush your teeth, <laughs> pick up your clothes. This is a home and not a hotel. I'm not your maid. Come on. These are the disciplines. You teach them respect. You teach them honor. I love the video I've seen about Shaquille O'Neal. His kids were saying, we're rich, we're rich. And he goes, no, 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 no. You got something wrong here. I'm rich. You're not rich. And he goes, and, and, and you're not getting handouts for me. I'm, I'm provide for you. But listen, you're going to get a master's or a bachelor's or a master's degree. And then you're going to want me to invest in you. You're going to bring your business plan. And I'll decide if it's a good one or not. Because I'm going to teach you to respect the value of work and money. I mean, I, this is like, I don't know where Shaq is spiritually. But I'm telling you, it's a biblical concept. You know, uh, it, it, it's like, and that's a, that's a shame when, I, and like, you know, I don't know where he's at spiritually, but it's amazing sometimes when you see more godly characters and unbelievers than you do in Christians. And, and admonition or so training and teaching are both necessary. Let me teach you why we're doing this. I'm just, sometimes they just need to learn obedience for obedience sake. But God usually gives us instructions as to why. And why? Because it's right. That's why. Okay, got it. 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. Doctrine means teaching. For reproof, for correction and instruction in righteousness. And that's why we get into the word. And that's why the word should get into us. Because it's profitable. Point number two, I have 20. No, working as servants of Jesus. Working as servants of Jesus. Verse five, bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in sincerity of heart as to Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart with good will, doing service as to the Lord and not to men knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. Colossians 3.22, bond servants. There's that word again. Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. 1 Peter 2.18, servants be subject to your masters. Gavin Ortland writes in his commentary, when we read verses like Ephesians 6.5, Colossians 3.22, and 1 Peter 2.18, we hear the common English translation, slave in light of our own historical context. We typically think of race-based chattel slavery in which the slave is a property of the master and lacks any legal rights. This kind of slavery is manifestly among the most despicable institutions to ever disgrace human civilization. And I say amen to that. I have never, ever understood, even as a, as a 
heathen, not saved, how anyone in their, in their mind could think that they would own another person. Like, it, it's just unconscionable to me. But I understand it comes from depravity. It comes from turning away from God. And we don't believe in the imago deo, the image of God, that every person is creating the image of God. And so it's that, it, it is despicable to me. And it's not the totality of what's in view in the context of this word in the Ephesus church in that ancient world. The Greek word doulos can be translated slave or sometimes servant or bondservant and often referred to people who had a surprising level of legal and social status in the first century Greco-Roman world. Most were not slaves from their birth or from their whole life or because of their race. For instance, the Roman jurist Gaius, second century, claimed that most slaves were prisoners of war who actually would have been slaughtered if not made slaves. Similarly, in the Old Testament, Israelite regulations freed slaves every seventh year, Exodus 21.2, commanded the death penalty for man-stealing, Exodus 21.16, and generally sought to limit the institution and protection of the slave. Further, slavery was generally not organized by race, but by circumstance and economics, for example, foreigners, debtors, and so on. So to be clear, slavery in any sense perverts God's created intention for human beings. Can we get an amen? Any kind of slavery, child trafficking slavery, children that are forced to work in these uh, places over in, in Asia and things of nature, just sexual, whatever it is, it's not God's intention. And there are some harsh passages we have to deal with, but there's a vast difference between the deplorable wickedness and films like 12 Years a Slave, if you've not seen it, I encourage you to watch it, and say what Paul is addressing in the first century Ephesian church. We must consider the whole Bible. All right, you got to step back. There are some problematic texts, and they can be a problem if you don't step back and interpret it in view of the whole. It's kind of the forest and the trees. You're focusing on this tree. You can't see the whole forest. So practices like slavery, polygamy, and divorce were common in antiquity. Biblical instruction that allows for them in certain contexts isn't necessarily biblical approval. We must interpret them in relation to everything else the scriptures say. God allowed divorce. God allowed it, but he never approved of it. Understand? There, he said from the, when they asked Jesus about it, he goes, from the beginning it wasn't so. From the beginning, man married a woman and love was to rule their hearts. And, but because of the hardness of heart, God allowed it. Because their hearts grew cold. They got hurt. They got offended. They didn't walk in forgiveness. They both didn't pursue love. And so, boom, we've got this hurt. And there's other issues too. Some people just get hardened. And their hearts are hardened and they don't want to forgive. And they don't want to uh, treat people right. And, you know... So it happens, but it never was God's intention. Do you see the difference? So whatever lot we find ourselves in, here's what he's talking about, unity in the workplace. And, and whatever lot you're in, do your work as to God. Not with eye service, working only, hey, boss is coming, get to work. <laughs> or as men pleasers, those who only care about pleasing man, but with goodwill 
good attitude without grumbling or complaining, doing our work of service as to the Lord, not to men. Who do you work for? Who do you work for? God. I work for God. I don't work for man. I work for God. Grace makes us the servants of God. I like this quote from Spurgeon. While we still are the servants of men. I work for God, but I serve mankind. But I work for God. It enables us to do the business of heaven while we are attending to the business of earth. It sanctifies the common duties of life by showing us how to perform them in light of heaven. I love that. David Guzik, in his commentary, writes, Doing the will of God. In Greek culture, manual work was despised, and the goal of being successful was getting to the point where you never had to do any work. This isn't how it is in God's kingdom, where hard work and manual labor are honorable. It should be said of every Christian that they are a hard worker and gives their employer a full day's work for their pay. To do anything less is to steal from your employer. Come on now. Christians should be some of the hardest workers on the planet. Because we work as unto God, not as unto man. Why do we work hard as unto the Lord? Because God will not allow our hard work to go without reward. Look, I want to serve with the right heart, right attitude, right spirit, right motive, because I don't want my works to be burned up as wood, hay, and stubble. I want them to be jewels. And like Paul says, when you work and you serve with impure motives and out of fleshly carnal approval and, and fame and all this, then guess what? You have just, you're putting wood, hay, and stubble that are going to be tested by fire, and you're going to have nothing left. Then he speaks to employers. Employers walk in the light. Treat the workers well. And you masters do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven. And there is no partiality with him. See, the gospel leaves its message of absolute, absolutely equal obligation in Jesus Christ. So in other words, the worker and the boss have the same equality. You're both accountable to God. Every, your attitude towards your boss and the boss's attitude towards, towards you are all accountable to God. It's equal ground. The ground's level at the cross, people. There, I don't, you know, you're, the money you have, the clothes you wear, the, part, the side of the tracks you were born on, where you came from, it gets leveled at the cross. You're all sinners and you all need a Savior. And your money won't get you in. Your prestige, your pedigree won't get you in. Only bowing your knee and confessing your sin and trusting Jesus as your Lord will get you into heaven. And that's it. That's why I love the cross. It's the great equalizer. It's the great equalizer. Jesus Christ. No threatening and harsh treatment. Both are employees of their master in heaven, and he judges without regard to wealth or position. Point number four, fighting against the darkness. Now he moves in. He's talked about family, the workplace. He's talked about marriage, children, all this, and unity in the church. And he goes, now listen, you're in a battle. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord in the power of his might. Paul comes to the end of the letter where he has carefully established our place in Jesus and the basics of the Christian walk. Finally, he says, in light of all that God has done for you, 
Remember what God's done for you. In light of the glorious standing you have as a child of God. In the light of his great plan of the ages that God has made you part of. In light of the plan for Christian maturity and growth he gives to you. In light of the conduct God calls every believer to live. In light of the filling of the spirit and our walk in the spirit. In light of all this there's a battle to fight in the Christian life. Be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Literally Paul wrote strengthen yourselves in the Lord. Strengthen yourselves in the Lord. This is so important. And I'm going to go back to the bondservant thing for a moment. Because it wasn't in my notes. And, but in my devotion yesterday, the writer of the devotion challenged the readers of this devotion to move from God help me prayers. God help me. God help me. God help me. To God have me. God have me. And it was like, well, I'm just sitting here and I'm reading this in the early morning and I'm thinking, wait a minute. I'm constantly, God help me, help me, help me, help me. He says, no, God wants to have you. And I've, it's just been reeling inside of me. God have me, have your way in me, have your way through me. God, I just don't want you to be my help and put you back on the shelf when I don't need it. I need you to have me. I need you to have me. Have me in my moment of temptation. Have me in my moment of, of success. Ha I, God, I want you to have me. And this is the idea. The bondservant that Paul talked about was a love slave. In the Old Testament, when somebody said, no, I love my master. He treats me well. He's benevolent. I have a good life. I have a good family. I want to be his servant forever. Then they would take his ear and go to a doorpost and take an awl and put a mark through it like pierced ear, big pierced ear. I don't know if he had the hoops in it or not to keep it open. I, I don't know. But somehow that was a mark that I want to be a servant to my master. And Paul said, I'm a bondservant to Jesus. I want him to have me. He is mine, I am his. And so he says, strengthen yourself in the Lord. That's important. Notice you must be strong in the Lord and his power and you must put on the armor. A weak person in the best armor is still a weak person. Order affects outcome. Get strong in the Lord and then put on the armor. But putting on the armor is not going to make you strong. I could go put on Patrick Mahomes' helmet. I could put on his shoulder pads. Pants would be way long because he's 6'3 or whatever. And, but the point is, me putting that on is not going to cause me to perform, no matter how much I fantasize about it, like Patrick Mahomes performs on the football field. And you're not going to perform well, even though you have all the armor on, if you're not strengthening yourself in God. I'm not strong out of wit. I'm not strong out of pride. I'm not strong out of arrogance. Or I'm strong in the Lord, in the power of his might. David said, I don't come to you with spear and sword. I come to you in the name of the Lord my God. And today he will deliver you into my hands, Goliath. Not me. I'm not going to deliver me. God's going to deliver me. And that's why Israel was so afraid because they were trusting in their own power and their own armor, but they were scared and afraid by the threats of a giant when David says, listen, you are defying God. And I know what God can do. He was with me when I killed the bear. That was after the sheep. And he was with me when I killed the lion. And this day, God will be with me now. 
And David saw past the size of the giant because he was looking to God. And that's what we, we need to do. I'm strong in the Lord and the power of his might. I'm nothing apart from him. I can do nothing without him. So weak person in the best armor is still a weak person. Then he goes, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation. First Thessalonians 5.8 speaks of the helmet of salvation in connection to hope of salvation. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. Why? The helmet of salvation protects us against discouragement, against the desire to give up, giving us hope not only knowing that we are saved, but that we will be saved. It is the assurance that God will triumph. One of Satan's most effective weapons against us is discouragement. When we are properly equipped with the helmet of salvation, it's hard to stay discouraged. Then he says in 17b, and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And after having done all this, praying always with all prayer and supplications in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplications for the saints. And then he says, and for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Do you know what the armor of God is? We could do a whole series on the different pieces and go into depth about it. But in essence, it's putting on Jesus. When I put on the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm putting on the armor of God. He is my salvation. He is my righteousness. He is my faith. And we're to live by the faith of the Son of God. I take up the shield of faith. I, he is the Prince of Peace. I shod my feet with peace. He is truth. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. So literally, you're putting on the Lord Jesus. You're being strong in the Lord, and you're putting on the Lord because that's your armor. And you're going out into the world, not as you, but as Jesus. You are empowered by the Spirit, anointed by the Spirit, full of the Spirit, full of God, allowing Him to be the Lord and head of your life. You're keeping your eyes focused on Him, and you're going out into the world in the spirit of grace, in the spirit of victory, in the spirit of joy. And you're standing in the place of prayer, not in the place of anger, not in the place of uh, meanness or evil for evil, but no, you're a new creation in Christ Jesus, and you fight the battles in a spiritual way. You overcome evil with good. You don't, you aren't overcome by evil. You overcome the evil with good. That's what Jesus did from the cross. And so he is our armor. He is our armor. And we're to put him on. And then he finally ends with a gracious greeting. And I want you to stand with me. Some of you are nodding off. He ends this beautiful book of Ephesians, this letter to you, to me, 
And I just want to encourage you, you who have received grace, be gracious, please. To you who have received grace, be gracious. And Paul, but he says, but that you also may know my affairs and how I'm doing. Tychius, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make all things known to you, whom I have sent to you for this very purpose, that you may know our affairs and that they may comfort your hearts. And then he says this, peace to the brethren. Peace to you. I say it, peace to you. Be at peace. Be at peace. Be at peace. Peace to you and love with faith. Hey, your faith without love is pretty nasty. It doesn't taste well. It's harsh. Love with faith. Let love be with your faith. From God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And verse 24, grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. Now, end the letter with the gracious greeting, guys. All that I've said about what God's done for you, how to live in unity, that there's one new humanity, grace to you to go walk it out. Grace to you to have faith with your love. And that's his prayer. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus. Your word is true. We yield to it now. We receive it now. We mix it with faith, and now we want to walk out these doors, and we want to be gracious to a harsh world. We want to be grace, gracious to people that are, are, that are enemies of the cross. God, we, we got to fight this battle the way you fought the battle, and so you are our teacher. You are our Lord. You are our example, and so church, I bless us. I bless us to be full of peace. I bless us to be gracious to the world and we encounter sin. And I bless us with the strategies of heaven to fulfill the will of God and do the king, extend the kingdom of God, not by might or power, but by his spirit. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Give him honor, give him glory, give him praise.